Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. We're so glad we can learn with you today. And um, this is such an important topic. While many people, one way or another, are in the current battles of the day, it's important to be in the battles of the long term, um, some of the most pressing existential issues, and remembering that these are not just political issues, but spiritual issues, um, ones that we can root um, ourselves physically um, and politically, but also uh, soulfully in. Um, how we think about our personal behavior, our, our communal adaptations, our societal and global. So the topic today is the sacred earth, Jewish perspectives on our planet. And I'm pleased to welcome my colleague, Rabbi Andy Khan, um, he, they, who grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and has lived in New York since 2009. Prior to starting rabbinical school, Hebrew Union College of Jewish Institute of Religion, that's the Reform Rabbinical School, He received a BA from Kenyon College in Ohio, an MA from Queens University in Kingston, Ontario. We've got a few Canadians here, so we always love that. And an MA from the Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. Um, Here in JTS, we know many people here may be mourning the passing of two professors just this week, uh, two longtime professors. He served uh, as an associate rabbi at Congregation Emanuel of uh, of the city of New York from 2018 to 2023 where he was invigorated, he has invigorated community members in their 20s and 30s, organized interfaith programming, and led people of all ages in deep Jewish learning geared towards spiritual development. He recently joined the team at Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn, New York, as the Associate Director of Yachad and Adult Education at Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn, New York. We just had some teens out here by the border from Beth Elohim. They were wonderful to learn with and be with. So thank you for sending them uh, with Sedek America, a great partner. His edited volume, The Sacred Earth, Jewish Perspectives on Our Planet, was published in June 2023 by CCAR Press. And I had the great schut, the great merit to um, work with um, Rabbi Andy Khan on a CCAR project, Firkeavot, um, a few years ago. So with that, The Sacred Earth, Jewish Perspectives on Our Planet, Rabbi Khan, welcome. Thank you for being here. Great. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley. Thank you, Alex, for organizing everything as well. Um, and a, a double thank you, Rabbi Shmuley, for um, welcoming all of our kids to your backyard just last week. They had a wonderful time. I heard from them afterwards. Um, so thank you all for being here today to learn a little bit. Uh, I'm definitely going to leave some time at the end for questions, but if questions pop into your mind as we're going, feel free to throw them in the chat so that you don't forget them, and then I'll come back to them at the end as well. Um, Today, I'm mostly going to be going over what the project was to me, why I undertook it, um, and then kind of what's in the book, Um, What's uh, because I think that it's not it's not as obvious as uh, as some some would assume. Think of these presentations I do about the book as more than just about the book itself, but about what the book is trying to do, what the what what questions it's answering, what role it's trying to fill in our, our current state um, as a species on this one planet. So I call it Judaism for a changing world because our world is changing very rapidly, as I'm sure you all know very well. One of the things that um, kind of charged me, one of the pieces of Torah that helped guide my 
compilation of this book is this midrash from Pirkei to Rebbe Eliezer in which God and the earth have a conversation about what it means to create humanity. We often think today about God simply being the primary and perhaps only mover in this um, this moment of creation um, up until Adam is created and then joins with God in that creation. But we see here in this beautiful ancient Midrash that the earth itself is anthropomorphized. And as they are speaking together, the earth is terrified, learning that this new species is going to be too much for her. Notice that it is gendered female in the Midrash itself um, to sustain. And so God says, we will split the sustenance that humanity during the night will be sustained by God and during the day, the earth, and that way the earth has time to recover as well. And so even back when Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer was written and compiled, our ancestors knew there was some balance that needed to be struck between humanity, God, and the planet we're living on. And that perhaps the planet itself has more to say about that balance than we often give it credit for. And so this ancient viewpoint as to how Judaism can approach um, the human relationship, because this even, and remember, this isn't just about Jews. Um, we're talking about the creation of all of humanity, but the human relationship between God and the earth altogether um, is integral to Judaism and has been for a very long time. Um, and to me, that was the primary point of this book is delving into that ancient approach to what it meant to be a good steward of the earth according to Jewish tradition, according to our ancestors and uh, the wisdom that perhaps came down all the way from Sinai. The first segment of the, uh, the book is theologies. So the book itself is, is chopped up into a few different segments. And I'm going to walk you through them each with a quotation uh, that I think kind of summarizes the theme of that segment. Um, in each. So um, this, this quotation is from a local to you, Dr. Havatiro Samuelson. Um, she teaches in Tempe, I think. One of her primary uh, focuses in, in her academic career has been Jewish approaches to ecology. And she wrote, Jewish ecological wisdom is rooted in the doctrine of creation. If the world was created by God means that the earth and its fullness belong to God and that humans are but temporary tenants of the earth. Although humans were given the right to use and enjoy the goodness of the created world, they were not given the mandate to destroy what does not belong to them. Being created in the image of God enables humans to imitate God's benevolence. And for that reason, humans were tasked with the obligation to till and protect the earth. So a bunch is going on in this quotation, um, but she really just lays out this fundamental viewpoint that can be traced throughout Jewish history as to the Jewish understanding of humans, not just rights to what we can do in the world, but our responsibilities to the world as well. Um, one key point here that gets brought up again and again in the book is her translation here, till and protect. Um, the language in Genesis is actually a little bit diverse as to how humanity is commanded to behave on the earth. Um, and this is one of the translations of the language to give it the valence of not it being our 
material to do what we wish with, but that also we are responsible for it. That the cultivation of the earth isn't just about us doing whatever we want, but is also about us protecting it and actually maintaining the cycles within it. So this is a list of all the chapters in the theologies. And um, this should show you a little bit of, of the diversity of viewpoints that I tried to bring in to, uh, to this collection. Inimitable Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who's been working in this field for a very long time, perhaps longer than almost any other rabbi, um, contributed a, a theological viewpoint, which shows, again, although this is through a reform press, CCAR press, um, CCAR press has been working really hard to diversify who its contributors are. Um, Rabbi Shmuley has been a mainstay in that diversification from his orthodox viewpoint. Um, but I tried to maintain that diversification here as well by bringing in um, different PhDs. So Jeremy Benstein, Havatiro Samuelson, um, Rabbi David Mavarach Seidenberg is one of the founders of the neo-Hasidic movement. Um, rabbi Mordechai Liebling is a, a famed Reconstructionist rabbi. Rabbi Jill Hammer is the founder of Kohenet, a brand new um, Jewish movement that is sadly also closing its doors soon. Um, rabbi Dr. Shalom Magid um, has private smicha from... Um, the Orthodox rabbinate in Jerusalem, I believe, but is also his main career as being a Jewish studies PhD. We have Rabbi Nina Beth Cardin and, and Rabbi Avram Israel Reisner, who I believe are Reconstructionist rabbis as well. Although this volume was edited by a Reform rabbi and for a Reform press, I tried to maintain um, a wide breadth of viewpoints to show that this issue of um, Jewish approaches to the earth and ecology isn't an invention of the reform movement. It is actually a widely um, attested part of Judaism that um, crosses across denominations today and it crosses throughout history. Um, you'll also see here, we've got a lot of different theological approaches. So some contemporary midrash, but also um, a halakhic or post-halakhic theology as um, Dr. Shal McGeed wrote about. Um, and then a some more kind of Kabbalistic or Hasidic approaches and some very kind of talkless approaches, which is what I think um, Rabbi Waskow brings is a way of reframing in this, his chapter, even the holidays, all about being around the cycles of the earth, which is actually um, a, a very cogent argument. The next section um, is particularly about delving into individual Jewish texts and finding within those texts ways of connecting to the earth and the natural world um, in a kind of trying to in the way the Jews approach texts, right? It's not just an academic um, undertaking to study Jewish text as a Jew. It is also a spiritual undertaking to seek within these texts um, the voice of God that is coming through our ancestors' relationships to the world around them and the way they're recording them. And Rabbi Shefa Gold uh, contributed uh, a wonderful piece that is a completely different kind of reading of the Song of Songs um, as a series of chants to bring out of the Song of Songs. And I, I, I worry that, that the way I said that made it unclear to what I'm talking about. So one of Rabbi Shefa Gold's primary uh, focus focuses as a rabbi has been bringing Jewish ritual chanting, like chanting um, tunes and words um, to the surface as a contemporary mode of Jewish worship. 
So she took the Song of Songs and cut out pieces of the Song of Songs to act as practical chants. So if you open up the book and go to her um, chapter, the pieces are kind of broken out. And there's even links that you can go to by typing them into your browser that bring you to her recordings of these chants as a way to connect to this text, not just through reading, not just through your mind, not just through your eyes and the language, but by bringing them into your body. Which is another thing that was very important to me in this book, that not only are we thinking about how to do Jewishly in an ecological way and in a way that connects us to the earth, but how are we actually able to do it in an embodied way that reminds us that our bodies are actually of the earth, that we're not truly separate from the environment that we're in. We're not truly separate from the planet. We are a part of it. And by bringing embodied practice from Jewish tradition to us today, we're able to locate ourselves a little bit more deeply in the environment itself, connect ourselves to the earth a little bit more tangibly. And in that way, I think, be able to more authentically work towards a world that is more integrated holistically um, with the environment itself, rather than in competition with the environment. Um, so there's a number of texts that uh, were really delved deeply into for this book. Um, Rabbi Nate DeGroote delved actually into the word Teva itself, the idea which in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, um, and even some medieval sources means nature. But prior to the creation of the word Teva, there was no word for nature in the Jewish lexicon, which shows us that our ancient ancestors did not see themselves as separate from the earth. They didn't even have the conception of a nature and non-nature. Everything was of a piece. Um, Rabbi Devorah Lynn wrote about the second paragraph of the Ve'ahavta, which depending upon your tradition, um, isn't controversial, <laughs> but in the reform movement long, long ago, well over a hundred years ago now, the second paragraph of the Ve'ahavta was removed from the liturgy because the early reformers thought that it seemed too, um, superstitious to say that our actions would affect the natural world, that by our not following mitzvot, the world itself, the natural world itself, would maybe turn against us or become uninhabitable. Because that's what Deuteronomy tells us in this, in this uh, chapter, or in this um, segment that's in our uh, daily liturgy. But Rabbi uh, Lynn is writing about how actually, now that we are further into understanding the human relationship with nature and the environment, we realize our ancient ancestors probably understood things that we didn't for a long time about the way in which our behaviors do impact the environment. And that the second paragraph of the Ve'ahavta reminds us of our responsibilities. And then in fact, so many mitzvot in the Bible itself, in the Torah itself, um, even though they kind of got left behind in the Babylonian Talmud to a great degree, um, are about our relationship with the with nature. And in fact, if we brought a more holistic mindset to how mitzvot guide us to behave towards the natural world and our environment, perhaps we wouldn't be in this state we're in with regards to our climate becoming uninhabitable. Um, the next chapter, I think, is very, very important and was... Um, and probably speaks most directly to one of the primary reasons I wanted to be a part of this project, um, which is figuring out how to use Jewish wisdom 
to deal with climate grief. Um, for those of you who haven't heard this term before or read about it, climate grief is the experience of recognizing that the world is changing, um, no matter what we do at this point. Um, and it is highly likely that the next couple generations after us will be living in a world that is much harsher, much more difficult to sustain themselves in. And that realization can bring about profound grief. And so what Rabbi uh, Bahar does in her chapter is talk about how Jeremiah, the prophet who um, is traditionally believed to have written the Book of Lamentations, um, dealt with the grief of the destruction of the temple and how we can use that same process, that same mode of thinking to deal with uh, the grief of the destruction of the larger temple, which is our world. I'm not going to go through each chapter, but the um, other thing to note that uh, we have in each segment are pieces that aren't considered actually chapters unto themselves because they're slightly more creative or slightly more personal. They're slightly shorter. So Yotzer Or here is a um, poetic reinterpretation of the traditional uh, the traditional prayer from um, uh, the Shema and its blessings in the morning uh, to focus it even more poignantly on the relationship between humanity and the earth. It's already a prayer about God's creation of nature and the world, but uh, Rabbi Evan Schultz um, poetically uh, focuses it more on our responsibility to the earth. And then uh, Dr. Adrian Levine, who teaches Bible at HUC, uh, reflects on the nature motifs in Job and her own kind of coming to grips with what they tell her about this moment in time uh, for humanity. Uh, the next segment is about individual folks' experiences of God in nature. And so this, uh, this piece right here, which I'm not going to read directly, you can read it as I speak if you'd like, um, by Rabbi Mike Commons, um, is reflecting on his experience of decades of doing what he calls wilderness Torah. So he combines taking people on hikes in beautiful places with the teaching of Torah as a way to give people the experience of the numinous, of the um, incredible moving impact that being in nature can have upon the individual. Um, and learning Torah in that environment reminds us what's going on in Torah. The Torah isn't just uh, dead words upon a page. It is trying to bring us that very experience that our ancestors had of God in Torah and often of God in nature. Um, and so in this segment, he's talking about the fact that the generation of the desert um, was the one that got to experience the promised land. And that's because of what they learned by being born and raised in the wilderness. So there's a, a handful of other kind of personal experiences of God in nature that are collected here um, by another wide variety of rabbis and non-rabbis. Um, I want to point out one piece, Radical Confidence by Rob Watson. Um, Rob Watson was a congregant of mine at Temple Emmanuel in Manhattan, um, and he's the founder of the LEED standard, L-E-E-D, um, that is used uh, universally all across the world um, to determine whether building projects are environmentally sound or not. Um, and he and his wife were um, integral in getting me more involved in um, 
trying to understand where Judaism and environmentalism overlap. Um, so the next section is about sacred time. One of the things that I think often gets lost in the conversation around today's human experience of, of living on this planet is the disconnection we have with natural time. Um, our ancient ancestor didn't have electric lights, didn't have air conditioning or central heating, didn't have the things that we use today to buffer us from the nat natural tides and times of the earth. And so not only does that mean we um, can easily fall out of sync with the rhythms of nature around us, but it also means that it's very easy for us right now to distract ourselves from the reality of the um, swiftly changing tides and times of the natural systems. Um, the piece I brought from the sacred time section is from Rabbi Devorah Weisberg, who teaches at um, HECJIR in LA. She's the dean there. Um, and it's this amazing story from the Talmud of um, a conflict about whether a year was going to have a leap month or not. Um, as many of you probably know, um, every so often, based on an ancient um, cyclical kind of model of counting time, the Hebrew calendar gains a second month of Adar. Um, and in this Talmudic story, there's some disagreement between the rabbis, between some locals who are um, shepherds that experience the world um, and nature in a daily way that the rabbis don't. And then also um, integrating the king and the high priest as um, almost um, false interlocutors in, in the story because there's a, a conflict between who gets to decide whether there's going to be a leap month or not, and um, some questions and answers about who and why get to make that decision. Um, but ultimately, this shows us that even in the ancient world, um, calendars were tools that could be used to subvert the natural cycles or to try to keep us in line with natural cycles. Um, and this has been an ongoing conflict within Judaism for thousands of years as to what our calendar is actually supposed to do. Is it supposed to align us with the natural cycles of the earth or is it supposed to align us with something else? Um, so highly recommend this piece. I loved it. Um, and there's a few other um, really interesting uh, pieces that I wanted to raise up from the sacred time portion, uh, one of which uh, that I really liked was from Rabbi Shoshana Meira Friedman. It was about creating a local lulav. Um, actually, in, in, in Arizona, it might be pretty similar to the traditional lulav. Um, but, um, and she's not suggesting that we replace the traditional lulav with a local lulav, but using the practice of creating a lulav as a new embodied way of experiencing Sukkot. So looking around, seeing what the most common plants are in your environment, um, whether it be trees or fruit, um, because we need something to also replace the etrog, and combining them into a lulav based of the indigenous species to the environment you are currently living in as a way of trying to connect more deeply in with that environment during Sukkot. Because that really is one of the primary themes of Sukkot, after all, is being out in nature, um, living in a temporary residence that doesn't kind of um, separate you from nature, and um, connecting in with the, the place that you're in, even if you have uh, the ability to not be connected with it by living in a house. 
Um, so these are the other pieces as well. There's one more thing I want to highlight here, which is um, perhaps some of the most hopeful pieces in the book from um, the Jewish youth climate movement. We had five young people who have been working in climate activism for um, many years of their youth reflect on what brought them to decide to devote their time and energy to climate justice at such a young age and what it means for them going forward as they move on into their adult lives. Um, seeing how the youth are thinking, uh, what's driving them to act and um, both their vision for the future and perhaps some of their uh, lamentations for the past um, is really important uh, today as we continue thinking about what it means to build a new future that these folks are going to have to inhabit much longer than we are. We also have a segment on contemporary responses that uh, Rabbi Shmuley uh, contributed to. Um, I have a huge chunk right here. Um, and I'm actually going to use this moment to talk a little bit more about what brought me into the, um, the process of editing this book itself. Um, the foreword to the book was written by Corinna Gore, who is the founder of the Center for Earth Ethics at um, Union Theological Seminary. She's not Jewish, but her um, Center for Earth Ethics tries to draw upon wisdom from all spiritual traditions in order to speak to the contemporary consciousness that needs to be shifted in order for us to bring about a systemic change to how we think about our environment. One piece that I think is often lost in the Jewish context is the way in which Judaism shifted in the modern era away from thinking about ourselves as a part of nature itself, as a part of the world, as not um, simply reigning over it, but as um, assigned the task of tending and tilling the earth. And that happened primarily at the outset of the reform movement. During the beginning of the reform movement, um, this was happening in the 18th century in Germany as Jews were emancipated and allowed to enter into the academy. And many very, very smart Jews saw that Judaism was not treated as a co-equal topic of, um, of study to other religions. And even at that time, Islam had already be, become, become um, a major topic of study in the academy. But Judaism was still seen through an anti-Semitic lens of being backwards, of being um, outmoded by Christianity and Islam. And these amazing scholars decided, actually, we're going to build an entirely new a wing of academia that focuses on Judaism through an academic lens. But part of that was the desire to bring Judaism to be viewed in a similar light to how Christianity was being viewed at the time as this um, modern ideology that could lead humanity into a new future that uh, it, it couldn't have imagined before, by which I mean this idea of endless progress towards greater and greater technological heights that would allow humanity to thrive and, um, frankly, dominate the earth uh, uh, endlessly. And so part of the goal of these early reformers was to bring Judaism into that same context. Um, and that context has been the primary ideological push, not the Jewish one, the Christian one, 
for what has led us to the place we are uh, with our climate. This idea that actually we are here to subdue the earth, that we, humanity, are here to figure out how to make the earth bend to our will and to continue developing new technologies that can do that better and better and better. Um, and this came out of the modern shift in the Enlightenment period, but is rooted particularly in a Protestant Christian understanding of humanity's role on the planet. And one of the goals of this book, um, and part of the reason that uh, uh, Corinna wanted to be a part of the project too, is that Judaism actually has a great deal to offer in this regard that actually speaks in the same language often as that of our Christian colleagues. Um, and Rabbi Shmuley lifted this up very beautifully in his piece about how to heal the environment through global interfaith activism by providing these examples from our shared scriptures that teach us um, very clearly our responsibilities to the earth. And he also articulated very clearly in this essay why it's important to start there. Because unless we know what we're trying to change internally um, within our individual selves and our individual communities and our individual um, wider spiritual communities, we're never going to be able to actually enact externally a change of the magnitude that we need to enact to stop this push forward into what is ultimately destroying our own ability to thrive and survive on this planet. One of the primary modes, as you probably know, if you are a um, common viewer of uh, Valley Bait Midrash, for Rabbi Shmuley is also veganism, um, which is a starting point as well that I think speaks to the, um, the necessity of beginning with yourself when thinking about these big changes that have to happen in order to uh, allow the planet to maintain its habitability. Um, and that allows us to feel like we are contributing in a, 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 a real way um, as an individual. Um, there's a number of really interesting uh, pieces um, in conversation with each other in this, um, in this section. Uh, Rabbi Mark Wachowski is was the director of the uh, Responsa project for the reform movement for a long time. And in his piece, he's coming from a, um, a Jewish or a reform halakhic point of view about how to think about environmental halakha as a category unto itself, which hasn't been invented yet. Um, we then get a, a chapter from Professor Alon Tal, who is writing about the environmental ethic that drove much of early Zionism and the fallout afterwards based on that ethic being rooted also in, in Enlightenment modernist thinking. And um, we have Daniel Delgado, who is currently a uh, rabbinical student in the renewal movement, uh, bringing in an anti-colonial ecological perspective. Um, and one of my favorite pieces as uh, someone who's been in the congregational world for a long time, Rabbi Dean Shapiro's, because he here posits a new role for synagogues um, that I think is extremely important, especially in an age when so many synagogues have lost their sense of mission and sense of purpose in their community, which is thinking about synagogues as a place to be planning for the future. That if a synagogue can imagine what its particular footprint is going to do 50 years, perhaps 70 years. I think he uses a, a beautiful midrash about um, 
70-year uh, time jump um, in the future, then synagogues can actually model for the rest of their community the kinds of changes that need to be done in order to make that community, that wider community, not just the synagogue, um, significantly more um, sustainable and usable for the generations to come. Um, then there's a great example of what this might look like from a community in Westchester, New York, that is actually a very large community. Um, I think it has something like 1600 families and it has gone zero waste in that everything it does is compostable and they have worked with the city to make sure that um, they have like regular composting pickup. And so they have a zero waste synagogue, which is um, pretty incredible for such a large synagogue. And one that's really in a major metropolitan area. Um, and then we have a couple more pieces, one just about sustainable eating and eco-justice, and one about the um, contemporary practice of indigenous land acknowledgements that uh, you may have seen crop up uh, more and more popularly over the past five years. I really do think that the Standing Rock protest, um, which itself was a, an environmental protest, um, began that uh, the popularization of this practice of acknowledging the um, indigenous owners of the land you're on. So for instance, um, where I am in Brooklyn right now uh, was originally Lenape land. Uh, the Lenape people lived here until the um, colonizers from Europe came and expelled them um, into what is now, uh, um, not Wisconsin, it doesn't matter, uh, into another state, not Wisconsin, the other very cold one. Um, uh, and so many people begin um, gatherings with these indigenous land acknowledgements. And Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg wrote a piece about how to actually take those land acknowledgements and make them something um, more meaningful than just spoken words about um, past tragedies and past iniquities. And instead about how to put it into practice to try to, you know, uh, fix what occurred in the past. Um, and I ended the book on that primarily because that's ultimately the goal. Um, not to do away with um, Jewish practices that perhaps don't fit into the contemporary progressive mindset, but instead to take our historical Judaism, that Judaism that charges us, that gives us a connection to our ancestors, that gives us a sense of um, depending upon how you look at it, an opportunity to connect with God or an obligation to fulfill me to vote, um, but also to add on a layer that reminds us at every point that one of those meets vote is caring for the world, is making sure that our activities, our actions um, as Jews also bring along with it our responsibilities to make sure that this world isn't left worse than how we found it, but instead is able to sustain our descendants going forward um, so that not only can the human race continue to exist on this planet, but that Judaism can continue to grow and thrive and um, develop as a very meaningful mode of integrating humanity with the wider systems that are our environment and are our planet. So that is really, that, that was the crux of the book. Um, and it's really the beginning of a conversation, the beginning of an attempt. Um, I shouldn't even say the beginning because I'm coming, I, I'm, I'm standing in the footsteps of many who came before me, including folks that have been writing about this that are in this book um, for decades. 
But in this instance, the goal was to get um, an easily accessible source book, really, out to the reform movement itself, the biggest movement in America, to try to help spur along a little bit more action. So thank you all for listening. And now I want to listen to you a bit. What, what are you thinking? What are you coming away with? How are you feeling about the presentation, the book itself? Thank you so much, Rabbi Khan. Yes, we'd love to open it up uh, to questions or comments. Um, Please feel free to raise your hands if you'd like to speak and we can call on people to unmute or you can always use the chat. Hi, Aglaya. Okay, hopefully this won't take too long, but my brain isn't functioning today. So I'm going to rip off Arthur Wasco for a minute though, but um, just bear with me because I told you my brain's not functioning, okay? So it's on Seasons of Joy and um, he's writing, what is wrestling? It is a close grappling that has some elements of fighting and some elements of embracing in it. Um, let's see, hold on. Um, I do not pretend my partner is the same as me and I do not pretend that I am the same as my partner. This is how the festivals grew through our millennia, through the millennia and are still growing. Our most ancient forebears took festivals of the sun and the moon and the birth of lambs and the harvest of barley and wrestled with these nature festivals to create history festivals, celebrations of political liberations and observances of military disasters. They wrestled with history and nature to create festivals that evoked and embodied the deepest yearnings, fears, and even clownings of the human spirit. Okay. Now, here's the thing. You were actually like, it was pretty cool that like um, that you began with, okay, so you have God, the earth and humans all as independent. So I'm kind of looking at this from the perspective of, well, what if it's a three-way wrestling match and like all of us, so how do we even take that from like, okay, well, wrestling and then we're like wrestling two partners at this point, like we're two wrestling <laughs> this point though and well honestly though to be perfectly honest with you we're not going to defeat either of them we're just going to keep mm. wrestling until the end of time which is, sounds like fun to me but you know i don't know you want to take that anywhere <laughs> yeah 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 no i think you're right i think that 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 is the nature of existence right that's the nature of like yisrael we are we are those who wrestle with god um and humanity and um i think i i think that that's a really beautiful metaphor that he brought forward, um, especially when you think about the story of Jacob, right? Um, Jacob had two wrestling partners too. He had the angel or the Ish. I mean, some some Midrashim say that that was actually Esau, but um, I don't... I don't buy that. That's that's not my take. I think that it, um, it was probably it was a it, it was a, a spiritual wrestling that Jacob was undergoing, and then what happens when um, Esau and Jacob do come together? They embrace, and just like Rabbi Waska said, wrestling is a mixture of fighting and embracing, and so we have to find those moments when we can embrace nature, embrace the world as it is, without seeking to change it to our own ends, while also noting that the way that we have um, contributed to the feedback loops that are really all nature is, and just continuous feedback loops, are going to create circumstances that we're going to have to actually fight against. Um, for instance, about a month and a half ago here at my congregation, there was horrible flooding in New York. I'm sure you all saw it on the news. It was pretty spectacular. Um, and we have to accept that that's going to be norm now that we're going to have this kind of flooding. And so part of our congregation got ruined. Um, and our religious school has been exiled from its building for a little over a month. And it's now being uh, repaired so that in the future, when flooding does happen inevitably again, um, it won't be ruined. 
And so that's, that's the wrestling, right? It's like, are we going to um, just give up and say, eh, it's ruined, we're done? Or are we going to figure out a way that we can actually coexist a little bit better with the natural world that we have led to this point? Um, and then where is God in this? Where is Hashem in this? Um, I think in listening to how our ancestors have dealt with similar questions, um, our um, struggles with nature aren't new. You know, um, you look back even in Deuteronomy to some of the legislations around wartime and what you can and can't do with trees. Um, that was our ancient ancestors knowing even that long ago that you can't allow war to give you the excuse to destroy the environment because then what are you winning, right? You win the war and you win a completely desolate land that can't, is, is useless for all humanity. So it's about always being in this balance of, um, of, you know, fighting and embracing. Thank you for the wonderful question. I appreciate it. A question came in in the chat that I can read out loud. Would you please talk more about the sense of time and the calendar and how the calendar produces an imbalance with human beings? Thank you. Yes, thank you. This is, like I said, that's one of my favorite chapters um, because of the story in it. So the story in it is that, um, and I'm going to recount this wrong. You can go back and read it and like email me later about how wrong I was, but I'm going to recount it how I remember it. This is my midrash on the story, I guess, um, that there um, were a couple of rabbis that were in disagreement as to whether to declare the year um, a leap year or not. Um and they were in disagreement because there were three shepherds who had said that, um, I can't remember whether they said it should be or shouldn't be a leap year, one or the other, because of um, how cold it already was. And so they were basing their decision on their own personal experience of the environment as shepherds. The rabbis traditionally base it on um, the, the alignment of the moon with the the calendrical date itself as it's going so it was a it was more of a uh, a mixture of a, a human created or according to our tradition god handed down our calendrical system but let's say a human a human created calendrical system with nature um and then we get a third voice in the story as um rabbi uh uh weisberg puts it of the king um, and the priests, and so a third and fourth voice, where the king and the priests um, had vested interest in um, the king wanted it to be a leap year because the king paid his military by the year, not by the month. So if the king declared it a leap year, he got a full extra month out of the military without having to pay them more. And the priest didn't want it to be a leap year because on Yom Kippur, the priest had to walk barefoot through the temple um, to offer the ritual sacrifice. And if it was a leap year, that meant that, that, that Yom Kippur would happen later in the year and it would be a little cold on his little tootsies, right? So he didn't want to have to walk on the cold pavers of the temple. So he didn't want it to be a leap year. And ultimately, because it's the Talmud, the rabbis say, well, we get to declare <laughs> whether it's a leap year or not. I don't remember what they chose, um, but they did it based on um, an integration of this calendrical system with the, the changes in the environment, namely the moon, um, which again is, I think, speaking to the question, I hope I'm pronouncing your, your name right, Aglaia, um, asked about um, what wrestling is with regard to this. The rabbis didn't get to just choose one or the other. They had to figure out how the, the, the needs of the calendar were integrated 
with the changes in the environment. That I think answers the question based on that essay. I can put a finer point on it, which is whether we let our we use our calendar to only benefit ourselves, like the king and the priest were trying to do, or whether we use our calendar as a way to connect with the um, the natural rhythms of nature as well, which is also part of um, of Jewish practice. Each of our holidays actually does um, root us in that time of year too, if we are in proper alignment with the calendar. But as climate change um, continues to encroach on us, it's actually becoming harder and harder to bring that alignment um, together in our, our Jewish calendar because the seasons are changing so dramatically. Thank you. Uh, hi, Reverend Bland. Yeah, thank you, uh, Rabbi Khan, for the presentation. It was great. I was turned on to your book by um, uh, Dean Shapiro, um, who used to be a colleague of mine here in Tempe before he uh, moved to New Zealand, and we miss him a lot. Uh, I ordered the book, and unfortunately, it got sent to my son, and unfortunately, my son lives in Kenya, so it'll be a while before I get reunited with the book, but I look forward to reading it. I'm interested in the interfaith uh, connection that you mentioned with uh, Karina Gore for the Center for Earth Ethics. One of the things we're trying to do here in Arizona is use storytelling as a way to bridge the cultural and political and, um, and religious just divides. So we get three different communities together uh, that are very diverse, and we ask them to tell a story about sometime when they stood on holy ground. And our definition of holy ground is any time or any place where they felt deeply connected with mm -hmm. themselves, with their neighbor, with nature, with the divine. So um, anyway, that, uh, so I was very much drawn to the title of your book and the uh, uh, what you've uh, introduced makes me even more interested. But could you say a little bit more about um, uh, Karina Gore's uh, interfaith perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so she's worked on um, a whole lot of interfaith uh, kind of environmentalist um, projects. And one of, I think the one the, the community she has been most involved with most recently um, is, is the uh, American indigenous population, the Native American population, um, because of their very long tradition of sacred spaces in this land in particular, right? Um, and their tradition of activism around it. Um, but being at Union Theological Seminary, which is also, it is traditionally a Christian seminary, but now um, I believe it also ordains Buddhist ministers um, and uh, interfaith ministers, um, allows her to still be rooted in a, a very um, kind of staid um, institution to build this out of. Um, there's another really wonderful note about Union Theological Seminary's location, which is it's right across the street from Jewish Theological Seminary, um, which is the conservative um, ordaining school in, in New York. Um, and she has worked um, with rabbis there as well to bring them into the conversation around activism and, um, and uh, Jewish approaches to the environment. Um, in her foreword, she writes very extensively about what drives her. And she talks a lot about Laudato Si, um, the uh, um, uh, Pope, Pope 
Francis's, uh, oh my God, what's the word? Like, is it encyclic? Is that the right word? It's something like that. Um, encyclical. Encyclical. Thank you. Yes. The encyclical about a, a new Catholic approach to the human um, role in nature um, and how it was very important, but hasn't actually had the impact that was it was hoped to have because it was almost too um, institutional uh, within the Catholic Church itself. And that the goal um, and her goal is to use religious language, use stories like you were talking about, use spirituality to um, get kind of under the hood of people's brains so that they can engage in practices and um, changes in their life that will ultimately affect their own, the environment itself, but that's starting exactly like you're talking about, um, Reverend, um, from the point of the, the personal. Um, Cause that's the only place you can start. You're not going to be able to make the kinds of drastic changes that need to be made in humanity's relationship to the planet um, from a, a top-down perspective. Although her father has <laughs> tried very hard for many, many years to do that. Um, she's trying it from the other side, from the, um, from the spiritual side to get people viewing their role in the world um, intrinsically differently. Um, because the the science, although very important in how to enact the change, is too complicated, too hard, and too dry to really be able to convince people that they need to change. Okay. Well, uh, Rabbi Khan, thank you again so much for being here with us today. It was a wonderful presentation. Um, thank you for having me. Um, and thanks again for being here. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.